Section 9 of Ancient Ideals in Modern Life. Four Lectures. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ancient Ideals in Modern Life. Four Lectures by Annie Besant. Lecture 4. Womanhood. Part 2. When we contrast with this the position of women in modern India, how great, how saddening is the change. Woman still keeps her exquisite spirituality. She still shows forth her strong and perfect devotion. Looking over all the types of women that the modern world presents, traveling as I have done in country after country, and coming into contact with all the different types of womanhood evolved under different civilizations, I bear you witness that I've found nowhere spirituality so pure and lofty, devotion so strong and tender, purity so unsullied and spotless, patience so wise and beautiful as are found even in the modern women of India. Undeveloped and restricted as are now their lives, yet they present a most gracious type, and when sometimes I have been thinking of one or another whom I have met, sometimes when I have been studying the beauty of character of the type, of the unique type of Indian womanhood, I have thought what India might be if all the possibilities in India's women had an opportunity of flowing out and actually coming into manifestation, when I have seen what they are under circumstances so disadvantageous, when I have seen what still they are, despite the narrow environment into which they are penned, I have thought that it may be that India's redemption may still be brought about by India's women, for when once the woman's heart is touched, she is a thousand times more devoted than are men. She is willing to sacrifice herself as a man will never sacrifice himself. Through thousands of years, through thousands of generations, women have learned the lesson of self-sacrifice in the home, with the husband, with the child, and when that spirit of self-sacrifice, now instinctive, a part of her spiritual nature, is turned to the highest object, is directed to the noblest ends, there is then a power for good that nothing else can give to the world. In the self-sacrifice and devotion of her women, it may be that India's redemption will find its real instrument. But in order that it may be so, some of the conditions under which women are growing up must be changed and this change is necessitated largely by the changes which are passing over the whole of India at the present time, by the pressure of Western education on the fathers and husbands, on the brothers and sons. These changes in the men necessitate certain changes in the women also, else too wide a gulf is made between man and woman. Their lives grow utterly apart, are carried on along too much separated lines. The woman, not knowing of the larger interests of the man's life, is not capable of the wise counsel that in older days she was ever ready to give to husband and son. Shut out as she is today, but as she was not in the past, from the reasonable enjoyment of and participation in the world around her, you find her growing narrower in mind, whilst still she keeps her purity in heart. We have to deal with that modern innovation in order to prevent the evil results growing out therefrom. Now we all know that some of the conditions that are to be eliminated have rather been imposed from without than evolved from within. The conditions under which large parts of the country have had to live, the Muslim invasion, the lack of safety of life and honour, dearer still than life, 
These are the causes which have brought about the system of seclusion, which is not Aryan. Zanana is not a Hindu custom, but preeminently a Mussulman custom. The system of Zanana does not belong to ancient India. All the literature of ancient India gives proofs to the contrary on that point. It has grown out of danger in times when it became absolutely necessary to put a wall of that sort round womanhood in order to preserve her from perils which it would have been impossible for her to face. It is not a matter for blame, it's only a matter for regret that those conditions became necessary in some parts of the country. In parts of the country where there has not been Mussulman dominion, the Hindu women have kept a large part of the ancient self-respect, dignity, and liberty, but are not under the very narrow seclusion system which is the characteristic of those parts of the country where the Mussulman has ruled for long. That is a point to bear in mind very clearly, for if it were possible, however slowly and however gradually, to enlarge these restrictive habits, to gradually widen out the life of the women, you would not be following the West, but following your own ancestral custom. You would only be giving back to the modern woman what the ancient Indian women continually enjoyed. Of course, the greatest difficulty of any change in this respect will come from the women themselves and not from the men. I know that in many cases husbands and fathers would be very glad to widen out their restrictions, but the opposition comes from those who've grown up in them, who for generations have been trained on these lines. The only way of bringing about a gradual change which will not do more harm than good is to educate, 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 and so slowly and gradually evolve the intelligence of women, bringing them back to the high level which once they occupied here. Let me point out to you that the present condition of women in India as regards education is far worse than it was even two or three generations ago. We know that the elder women are better educated than the younger generation. The younger generation has fallen, as it were, between two stools. The old education is no longer imparted. The modern education does not take its place. With regard to that modern education, permit me to say that you will be most unwise if you adopt for the education of your women a mere copy of the education given to Western women, that is not the kind of education that you need. It would not build up women of the ancient Aryan type. Think for a moment what female education is meant to do in the West. Owing to the social conditions there, a very large number of women remain unmarried. There is an enormous class of unmarried women there who practically have no supporters, they are not supported as to their ordinary livelihood by fathers who pass away, by brothers who have their own households to look after, and they are left to support themselves and to gain their own livelihood. Now that gaining of their livelihood leads them necessarily into competition with men. They enter the labor market, and they have to follow the trading conditions in regard to the various means of gaining a livelihood. Out of that competition, out of that struggle for existence, out of the passing of women into the public arena of life struggle, where they have to gain their own livelihood and fight for their own hands against the competition of men, out of that has arisen the demand for what is called the higher education of women. Its object is that the women educated on the same lines as men may be able to compete with them in the various walks of life and earn their own livelihood as men earn theirs. That is the economic reason underlying the demand for higher education. I presume that no Hindu, unless he has lost the Hindu heart, desires to bring about that economic condition of things here. 
I presume that he does not desire to educate his daughters and then to send them out into the world to struggle with men for gaining a livelihood, to compete with men in the various learned professions, in the various commercial undertakings. Truly no Hindu can desire to bring about such a regrettable stage of social evolution. But if not, why adopt a type of education designed for such a stage? It is undesirable that Indian girls should be trained along those unsuitable lines. What you want to do is to devise a system of education which shall make them ideal Indian women of ancient types, fitting them for the most part for the life of wives and mothers, and in rare cases for that knowledge of Brahman which may make them under these conditions as it did under the old conditions, the spiritual teachers and helpers of humanity. But for that, what ought to be the education? First, it is clear that the elements of the ordinary vernacular education must be given to them, with a knowledge of Sanskrit and its literature, so that they may be able to read of the great ideals of womanhood and desire to reproduce those in their own lives. This should be the foundation of women's education, a knowledge of the vernacular from the literary standpoint, and a knowledge of the mother language Sanskrit, in which is stored up the sacred literature of India. It would be wise, though many of you will probably disagree with that, as a novel idea, if you introduced also the knowledge of the English tongue. By doing that, you would bring them into touch with the lines of thought along which their husbands and their sons are traveling, and would thus enable them to appreciate the tendencies and influences which are playing upon the men, and to neutralize some of the evils which arise from those influences when left unchecked. At the present time, men are too much inclined to go along skeptical and materialistic lines because of the education they receive. Women, utterly shut out of all knowledge, cannot mentally meet them anywhere and appeal to them by that which has influence over them, shut up into a narrow, lonely, unthinking life, left often superstitious rather than enlightened in their faith. They fail to influence men, for the man puts aside the opinion of women, generally thinking that it is not worthy of consideration because of their lack of education. With extreme care, then, so that you may not injure the type of womanhood as the type of manhood has been injured, you might introduce the nobler, purer side of European thought and bring that within the reach of the women of India. Then they would know something of modern life, and they would be able to appreciate better the conditions amidst which their husbands have to live and work. They would again become counsellors at home, as they cannot be now that they are utterly excluded from all knowledge of the outer world. Nowadays, from ignorance of outside conditions, they continually press for things that are impossible, and often make difficulties where none should exist, in regard to the training and instruction of the young. Then you should add to that education, an education scientific in its character, along the lines which should make the women more useful as the queens of the home. She should be taught in modern India, as she was taught in ancient India, the elements of hygiene, physiology, and nutrition, so that she may guide the household wisely and well, so that you may not have to call in a doctor for every trivial ailment and difficulty. The older women still are wiser than many of the younger generation who are ignorant, and therefore useless. In tracing out education for the women, this ancient element ought again to be included, so that you may build up a wise, patient, religious, clear-judging woman, who shall be her husband's friend, counsellor, and helper, as well as the joy of his heart and the delight of his life. It might be well, in addition, if you added to that literary, scientific, and religious education, 
some elements also of artistic training. How much might be added to the happiness and brightness of the home if the girls of the home were trained, to some extent, along artistic lines? I know how much prejudice there is in India against artistic training, especially where music is concerned, because of the shameful associations that have grown up in connection with vocal and instrumental music. But those do not belong to the art itself. They are part of the degradation of modern India, of the degradation of Indian men and women. Your sons, if they would have music, must go into bad and degraded conditions. If they would have emotional delight and all young men crave it, they cannot have it at home, and so they go for it amid the lowest of the population, and mix with the most shameful of companions. Is that wise? Is that right? So strongly is this felt, that in some parts of India men of high and respectable families have started classes where girls of similar families may be trained in instrumental and vocal music, although at first the movement met with very great opposition. Although at first harsh and cruel things were said about those who led it, yet gradually it is making its way, and girls thus taught, I was told in Madras by the very Brahmin who was instructing them, those girls are most eagerly sought in marriage because of this accomplishment, which has made them a bright adornment of the home. More and more in Madras this kind of education is spreading, and is breaking down prejudice, and is making the homes brighter for the young, more attractive especially to the Western-educated boys. Along these lines, then, I would suggest that education should go, and not along the lines along which, to a very small extent, it is nowadays carried out in India. But I should not be dealing fairly with you if I did not say that there is one tremendous obstacle in the way of this— an obstacle which I know not if you will be strong enough and wise enough to surmount, that is, that such an education cannot be given if child-motherhood is to remain a part of Indian life. If the girl-child is to be made a mother, then she can never grow to the real height of motherhood, so that there again the question turns on this same pivot of early marriage that I spoke of in the first lecture, and will have to be decided by your own thoughtful and deliberate consideration. There are two ways in which a woman may be treated. One, the ancient way. One, the modern way. One, I venture to say, a natural and so a wise way. The other, an artificial and so a foolish way. One that makes for construction and the other that makes for gradual destruction. The ancient and wise way was training, educating, raising the woman, putting her more and more on a high level, and then giving her a reasonable and dignified liberty. The modern and foolish way is keeping her ignorant and undeveloped, childish and irrational, and then shutting her in within a narrow environment. There are few things more beautiful in life than the way in which the Indian son loves, reverences, and obeys his mother. But if that most beautiful of relations is to continue under the modern conditions for boys in India, you will have to meet their needs by educating the women who are their mothers. You all know the obedience that the Indian son shows to the mother— how he treats her practically as a goddess, whose words must not be challenged, whose lightest wish must be utterly and completely obeyed. If that exquisite relation is to preserve its life under the changed conditions, you will have to get rid of the narrowness that too often marks the woman's opinion at present, because of her utter shutting out from the external world, her shutting into the indoor life. If you would preserve that, and to lose it would be the saddest of losses, one that India could scarcely survive. You must gradually raise the womanhood of India so that the mother's words may be wise as well as loving, may be broad instead of narrow, 
may meet the conditions of the day, instead of entirely ignoring them, may not make unreasonable demands, demands which are sometimes felt to be unreasonable, even while the man yields himself to them from the instinct of love and obedience. This is a necessary condition for preserving that exquisite relationship, one that the men must take into their hands, for all the power is lodged in their hands. While a woman is very, very young and very fair, unreasonableness may seem almost an added charm in the eyes of some. The petulance of a graceful child is felt as amusing and pretty, but when the child has grown to a woman of mature years, that lack of judging impartially and reasonably is felt as a difficulty, is felt as a hindrance, is felt as a disadvantage and annoyance. In order that the woman's influence may be preserved, in order that she may not lose her hold over the respect as well as the hearts of her husband and her sons, in order that she may really be one half of humanity as she ought to be, in order that she may play her part well in the home, may train up her sons as they ought to be trained, in order that she may exercise an elevating power over the children round her knees, may prove a worthy mother to worthy sons, this question must be considered and dealt with by the wise among you, else the gulf between Western-trained men and uneducated women will widen, despite all love, despite all tenderness, despite all longing to remain together, for the influences are mighty which are tending to divide, and unless those influences are checked, that old great ideal of marriage will disappear and be seen no more. This, then, is the line of thought that I would suggest to you with regard to the womanhood of India, that you should study and realize the old ideal, that you should then see how it may be reintroduced, that you should educate women everywhere and choose wisely the kind of education that you give, that you should keep in mind the capacities that they have, that you should evolve those to the utmost of your ability, so that in the future as in the past there may be great, heroic, strong, pure and devoted women in India, for sooner or later weakness means degradation, sooner or later the lack of strength leads to lack of love and lack of fidelity. My brothers, I've gone over in these lectures many difficult problems, many thorny questions on which inevitably much difference of opinion must arise. The slow deterioration of centuries, of thousands of years, cannot be undone in a moment, cannot be changed by a single effort. Nay, the very need of changing is not seen by very many of you, so thoroughly are you the men of your own times, the result of this long course of change. The more the ancient ideals can be studied, the more will these modern spectacles drop from your eyes, and you will see the need for change. You will see the necessity for exertion. It is to the elders I appeal, for in your hands is the power, and in your hands ought to be the power, and in the hands of none other. On this point I do not appeal to the young, to the growing lads. It is not for them to deal with these questions. It is not for them to initiate reforms. If you leave it to them, the reforms will be hasty, ill-considered, headlong with all the natural impulsive hasty judgment of youth. It is to you, the fathers, mature men, men of middle age, it is for you to consider these questions and to look into the immediate future. You are responsible for sending your boys to an education which is changing their views of life. You are responsible for sending them to missionary schools or to government schools and colleges where their faith is undermined, where the old ideals are destroyed, where the new thoughts are poured into them without any restriction or limitation. Then, looking at the results, you are inclined to complain. Large numbers of them are thoroughly westernized. 
Large numbers care nothing for the old ideals. Large numbers are bent upon reproducing the social and economic conditions of the West, of which they know so little, of which they dream and imagine so much. What will be the result? You're going to pass away from India, and are leaving the future in these young hands. You cannot long stand where you're standing today. You cannot stand there forever. You will have to leave your places for that where the fire will receive you, and whence your ashes will be cast into Gangi. Then these young men will make the India of the future, and mould that India as they will. Therefore it is to you I plead, if you will deal with them aright, if you will put before them in your own lives the old ideals, that they may imitate them, if at all times you will recognize that there is of justice in their longings, and feel sympathy with their aspirations, if you will not turn a deaf ear to everything that they say, if when they want to go forward you will share to some extent in their hopes and guide them, and not turn a deaf ear to all they plead for, then you may direct and mould them, and so turn the future of India into the right path. If you will not, then you are digging the grave of India, and she will go down into that grave after you have passed away. It is all very well to say that all social reform is bad. I grant that much of the spirit in which it is now carried on is bad and mischievous. It is foolish that the old ideals should be utterly disregarded, and it is true that the acceptance of many of these reforms in the spirit in which they are made would be the ruin of India as a people, and would be the destruction of her religion as a living force. I grant all that, but I tell you that there is equal danger on the other side. Dogged conservatism, fossilized orthodoxy which will not move, men who will only stand fixed in their conceit where they are, while all around them is moving, men who will not consider the moving wheels of time, those men are as dangerous to India's religious future as those who will utterly westernize her and so wipe her out from among the nations. It is because of that that I have spoken upon these subjects today, in what is the most conservative city in the whole of India. It is because of this danger to India that lies in the future, this growing up of the young generation under the glamour of Western civilization, Western thought apart from all Hindu traditions that I have spoken today, unless you can win it to the old ideals and penetrate it with the spirit of the ancient faith, there is no hope for the future of India. There is what you really need. There is the path. There is the path that wisdom points out for your treading. Be willing to get rid of your bias. Be willing to introduce reforms and change the customs which are harmful and mischievous. Do not be frightened away from change by the red rag of social reform. Do not be deceived into the idea that because one kind is bad, therefore all change is dangerous. You must admit that India is not what she ought to be. You must admit that there are abuses on every side. You must know that a distinctly large number of educated youths are becoming more and more alienated from the ancient modes of life. It is no good to blame them. It's no good to denounce them. You should try to win them, try to induce them to follow the wiser path, show sympathy and not antagonism, and so you gain influence over their hearts and their lives. Is India to be split up into two parts, one which will change nothing and the other which will change all? If that be the future that you deliberately choose, then indeed the destiny of India is fixed and will not alter. Then her place will go to another nation. Her function of teaching will pass to another people. 
Stones that will not move are left behind by the current, and if the current be not wisely directed, but a dam be built across it, then after a while, when the current gets enough strength, the dam is swept away, and the waters flood the country and destroy instead of fertilizing. It is that great danger which the educational movement started by us in this central Hindu college is intended to ward off. It is intended to weld together the old ideals and the modern spirit. That is what we are doing in this place. It is that road along which lies India's salvation. While we are dealing with the young, it would not be wise to leave out of account the mature. While we are trying to educate the future, the present should be modified as the field wherein that future must express itself. My last words to you, my brothers, are words of appeal, not to let prejudice blind you, not to let custom be an obstacle in the way. Let not the conservative instinct of the ancient civilization make you utterly close your eyes to the needs of the present, to the demands of the future. I make my appeal to you because I love ancient India so well, because I still nurse within my heart the hope of India's resurrection. As she is lying today, she's prone on the ground, helpless, degraded, without power, with only the forms, the shells of the ancient, the mighty religion that was once her glory. Nothing scarcely of its power and little of its knowledge remained, strangled in the fetters of customs that have grown round her limbs through centuries and millenniums, bound by these iron fetters so that she can scarcely move either hands or feet, is she to lie there till her swoon passes into death, so that the only light that India shall again give to the world shall be the light of her funeral pyre, the flames in which is perishing a dead civilization? Some say that is inevitable. Some declare that there is no hope of her resurrection, that the life has gone from her and will pass into one or other of the nations of the world. I cannot believe it. I will not accept it until all forces to rouse her have proved fruitless, until all struggles cease and no sign of life is seen. If there be but a hundred hearts among India's children who love their country better than they love themselves, if there be here and there hearts that can be set on fire with enthusiasm, with devotion, clean and strong hearts that can place themselves on the altar as an offering to the high gods that India may live, although some of her sons may perish. If India has still in her something of her ancient spirit of love, of patriotism and of devotion, then it is possible that the change we long for may come, and India, reborn into the modern world, may be greater than ever she was in her glorious past. I believe that still the choice lies before her. Still there are two paths before her, one leading upwards and the other downwards, one rising gradually up till she shall stand again on the pinnacle of the spiritual teacher of mankind, the other sinking slowly downwards through the throes of dying agony to the place where she shall perish, and only her ashes shall remain. Choose you. The choice is yours and not mine. One human tongue can do but little. One human heart has but little force in it. It may break, but it cannot make a nation, if the nation will not make itself. I can but speak to you, I cannot do your work. I can bring to you the message of truth. I cannot make you accept it. Yours is the responsibility, not mine. Yours the choice, not mine. I have done my duty when I have spoken and pointed out to you the path which will lead to the redemption of India. If you see that path to be right, but shrink from taking it because of the difficulties and the oppositions that cumber it, then indeed you are not worthy to tread it. 
for it is a path for heroes and not for feeble souls. Choose you your answer, for it is an answer alike to karma, to the world, and to the gods, and take the responsibility which is on you, and act as you will. For me, so long as breath remains in me, I shall strive to help this land, the greatest of all lands in the past, the greatest of all lands in the future, if you will. Those who will work, let them come and work. Those who will sleep, let them sleep until their country dies. Then in far other births and other lands you may look backwards with sorrow and regret to what India once was, but what again she shall never be. For the choice that the gods give is a choice that once made is endless in its results. Choose you, then, what you will, and may the high gods inspire you to choose a right. Afterward the suggestions put forward in these lectures are meant to be lived, not merely read, and that by men who love Hinduism, who are religious as well as moral. They may be summed up under the following heads. 1. A resolve not to marry their sons before eighteen, nor to allow the marriage to be consummated before twenty. The first marriage, betrothal of their daughters, to be thrown as late as possible, from eleven to fourteen, and the second, consummation, from fourteen to sixteen. 2. To promote the maintenance of caste relations with those who have travelled abroad, providing they conform to Hindu ways of living. 3. To promote intermarriage and interdining between the divisions of the four castes. 4. Not to employ in any ceremony, where choice is possible, an illiterate or immoral brahmana. 5. To educate their daughters and to promote the education of the women of their families. Six not to demand any money consideration for the marriage of their children. If pious men in all parts of India carried out these reforms individually, a vast change would be made without disturbance or excitement, but they would need to be men of clear heads and strong hearts to meet and conquer the inevitable opposition from the ignorant and the bigoted. The worst customs that prevail are comparatively modern, but they are regarded as marks of orthodoxy and so are difficult to put aside. I need scarcely add that I should be very happy to hear from any reader who agrees with some or all the suggestions made, or who has thoughtful criticism to offer, for only by the efforts of brave and true men can the great work outlined be accomplished. Peace to all beings. End of section 9. Read by Sandra near Montreal, 2022. End of Ancient Ideals in Modern Life by Annie Besant.